Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is Chile Desperto. Chile woke up and is a special 90-minute episode. Our opening song comes from Anna Tiju, hip-hop artist and social justice activist. This is No Mas, from the 2014 album Bengo. The song begins, Cancerous buildings pile up, numerous, in high and furious cement blocks. They covered the light of powerful names, and never again was that brilliant sun seen. Tiju was born in France in 1977 to parents who were jailed and later fled Chile under the dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet. Around the world, as governments tell people to cut back and pay more to cover basic needs, the people have responded with explosive refusal and chaos. Two weeks ago, the Chilean people woke up, Chile Desperto. They're calling it a social explosion, which could equally be due to the speed of the conflict's escalation or the extensive property damage by fire. Chile's uprising started with groups of high school students who refused to pay a hiked fare for the subway. Ivacion Masiva students shared memes about turnstile hopping, and within 24 hours the stage was set. People across the capital took to the streets, banging pots and destroying city buses. The protests centered on the rising costs of living and the creation of the greatest wealth gap in the countries comprising the OECD, or Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, a Marshall Plan organization supporting economic imperialism. These are features of the Chicago School neoliberalism behind Chile's lauded but fictive political stability and economic success. The government, headed by the conservative media mogul billionaire president Sebastian Piñera, has reacted to the uprising in ways that have drawn comparisons with the tactics of former dictator Augusto Pinochet. This past week, Piñera declared the first state of emergency to control protests since the return to democracy in 1990. In the eyes of many Chileans, Today's human rights violations, military tanks and helicopter patrols, police brutality, curfews and state of emergency amount to dictatorship-era violence reoccurring now. The government's lack of reform measures and militarized responses have led many Chileans to believe the economic precarity and police brutality are simply highlighting the illegitimacy of the current government. And just like that, the entire constitutional system is in jeopardy. Now, the protests have spread beyond Santiago and beyond the youth. Piñera was forced to cancel two major international summits, including the UN Climate Change Conference, due to the insurrection. For today's interchange, producer Bella Bravo speaks with Nicola Garcia, a political anthropologist at Emory University who researches peri-urban politics in Santiago, Chile. Garcia is currently in Santiago, conducting fieldwork, and has been in the midst of the uprising from its beginning. They spoke via Skype from Garcia's home on October 29th. And now, Chile Desperto on Interchange on WFHB. Today we're here with Nicola Garcia, a political anthropologist at Emory University who researches peri-urban politics in Santiago, Chile. They are currently in Santiago conducting fieldwork uh, and is there now while the Chilean uprising is occurring. Welcome, Nicola. Hi, thank you for having me. Start off by giving us background on your research and how it relates um, to the uprising that we're witnessing. My research is basically a historical analysis of how peri-urban politics, peri-urban means 
the suburbs of Santiago at the both economic, social, and physical periphery of the city, and tracing their political movements from the 60s to today, focusing on both Mapuche indigenous and uh, Chilean peasant migrants who came to those neighborhoods from the 60s to the 70s. And so Santiago, like a lot of different cities in Latin America, um, basically exploded in population in the 60s and 70s, not because of the city planned for um, new worker housing, planned for new neighborhoods for the working class, but rather people, because of poverty and precarity, moved to Santiago, um, built neighborhoods, the equivalent of like shanty towns or favelas. During the socialist era, so um, before the Pinochet dictatorship, they were formalized um, into either vias, which are public housings, or other forms of um, apartment complexes or uh, neighborhoods throughout like the outskirts of Santiago. And so basically, with the uprising today, a lot of these neighborhoods and vias are basically um, the center of where a lot of this unrest kind of exploded. So this is where, I'll mention this a bit more later, uh, Evasio Masiva, the massive movement against the metro system. Uh, really took off with the youth. Uh, they're also a hotbed of leftist organizing historically, um, both within leftist political parties in Chile, being the Communist Party, Socialists, or the current, um, or like more recent uh, Democratic Socialist Party called Frente Amplio. But they're also um, a host of a wide variety of neighborhood assemblies and forms of neighborhood autonomy, such as Oya Comunes, which means community kitchens. And where people are cooking for each other, um, especially now during protests where people aren't necessarily working and they're in the streets more and have less money. Neighborhoods are getting together and meeting to plan the logistics of how the neighborhood's going to operate within this movement. And then lastly, because of the very informal nature of a lot of these neighborhoods and the history of oppression during Pinochet, these are also neighborhoods of very um, strong, I guess you could say, distaste for the police in Chile. So this is also where a lot of um, small scale like, conflict has occurred between protesters and police, and especially more recently with the military in the street, where a lot of um, repression with the military has occurred. Could you tell us about what the chain of events that really led to this revolt setting off? The uh, Metro of Santiago was going to raise the fare for the Metro by about 40 pesos, the equivalent of three cents. So Santiago has the second highest cost of Metro in South America, right behind uh, Sao Paulo. And it's also um, run by a, pri by a private company that partners with the um, city government. And the way the metro system here works is it's um, a tier system. So if you take the metro during, you know, a quiet hour, say 5 to 6 a.m., it's the cheapest. If you take it during rush hour, um, it's the most expensive. And so the city was um, citing the rising cost of gasoline was um, saying we need to raise the metro fare for peak hours. And when people complain that basically the metro and the cost of transportation here in Chile is the equivalent of 20% of someone making minimum wages, um, monthly wage, oh my which God. is a huge amount just to get to work. And come, that's only assuming if you are taking the metro just to get to work and come back from work, um, that it's undoable. And um, I believe as the Ministry of the Interior's response to a lot of these complaints was, um, well, Chileans should learn to get up earlier. So take the... Um, the bus when it, or the train when it's not during peak hours and save some money. And so this kind of response where um, the city and hearing people's concerns about just how expensive the metro is was just basically um, you are lazy uh, didn't go over too well. 
Honestly, uh, the mass evasion movement started with a meme, which is, um, you know, jump over the turnstile, which is something we've seen in a lot of other cities. Um, most notably, a few years ago in Mexico City, um, the movement was called Bos Mesal, where people would also jump over the turnstiles to protest the rise in the metro fare. And um, like that, it was, you know, it's pretty much a spontaneous thing that went through, you know, meme pages. Um, teenagers would, you know, send these memes to each other, send these like notes to each other. And um, there was a call for a week of a um, metro evasion strike, essentially. And um, so I saw this about three weeks before the mass evasion started. And a lot of people thought, oh, this is a great idea. This seems fun. Um, and then when it actually started, we had no idea that it would just be a massive um, diffuse form of protest throughout the city where you'd see videos of all these kids running through the metro, jumping the turnstiles, pushing past police officers to get on the metro. Um, when the TV would interview like older people um, who were there when this was happening, um, it was really striking. Um, a few people being interviewed said, "Yeah, this is great. Like, you know, the metro is too expensive for me. Um, I have a bad hip. I'm not able to jump the turnstile and protest. But I'm happy the kids are doing this like on my behalf." Other people were saying, "Oh yeah, like I was behind this group of kids, and um, because they smashed the turnstile, I got to get on." the metro for free although i didn't have to you know be at the front and risk getting hurt or something and so almost immediately um gained a pretty much wide support of um other people in the city this is interchange on wfhb and this is ana tiju's ante piñera rap hashtag casaralazzo today producer bella bravo brings us chile desperto or chile woke up her guest is Nicola Garcia, an Emory University political anthropologist currently doing fieldwork in Santiago. They spoke from the midst of the uprising on October 29th. In kind of response to this, I think about Wednesday, so like halfway through this movement, um, riot police were at every single metro station. And... Um, the Ministry of the Interior was basically threatening to um, find anyone who's evading the metro, the equivalent of $600 in a fine, which is about twice the monthly minimum wage salary. And um, every, I think it was Pineda was calling everyone who was doing this delinquents. And this also had a major you know, impact on everyone because, so for example, Pineda was just found, the president of Chile, that he's been evading property taxes for the past 30 years. Oh, wow. And um, the government is basically only forced him to pay three of those 30 years of property taxes he's evaded. As well as there's other scandals around taxes where the elite and um, people in government have been evading taxes basically since traditional democracy. And so everyone was basically saying on the internet, but also in these marches that, okay, so if you're rich, you can evade taxes. But if you're a poor person jumping the turnstile to avoid paying $1, you're basically going to um, destroy us economically. And so this exploded on like the last Thursday and Friday of um, that week where it was happening all over the city. Uh, right, police would shut down the metros. And so students would basically break in the metro, rip down the gates and come on, which by rush hour on Friday, this basically crippled the entire metro system in Santiago, where every single train stopped running and every single train line was shut down because uh, the riot police were saying that this is unsafe, so there's going to be no metro. And then that day, basically everyone had to walk home to, from work because there's no metro running. The bus lines 
were insane. Um, it took me two and a half hours. I had to walk all the way across town. Whoa. And then that was kind of what triggered the, uh, what's called here, Estado uh, Social, so the social explosion in Chile, where that night in Santiago, there was mass protests all throughout the city. Um, barricades were set up. Metro, uh, metro trains got burnt. Um, buses got burnt. Um, the Inel, the electricity company, also their building got set on fire. And so in response to this, um, that night, the government declared a state of emergency in Santiago, which basically means that um, the military could come on the streets, as well as um, the right to assemble and the right to free speech could be suspended. And um, because of that, this is the first time the military has been on the streets in Chile since the dictatorship. And because what many see as a response to protest with dictatorship era repression tactics really caused this to be generalized and explode all across Chile. Once the military returns to the streets, once there's curfews enacted, um, and once the right to assembly is being suspended, it gives the police and the military the right to act with more impunity towards protesters. So we're at this point, 3,500 people have been arrested. Uh, about 20 people have been killed, several while in police custody. There's about 150 disappearances. Um, it just came to light that a metro station was used as a uh, torture chamber by the military. And today the UN has um, arrived to basically launch an investigation of the government's repression. And so basically, because of the government's repressive ways of responding to what was once just two weeks ago, essentially, um, you know, a, a novel form of protest that teenagers did and shared and spread throughout the city via social media has turned into a giant social movement that on one hand is based on um, the illegitimacy of the current government, so the Piñera government, and on the other hand, an illegitimacy of the entire kind of post-dictatorship democratic system in that this government's response to protest signals that a lot of issues from the dictatorship are still present in the Chilean um, economic and political order. This is Interchange on WFHB, and this is Ana Tiju's Ante Piñera rap, hashtag Casaralazzo. Today, producer Bella Bravo brings us Chile Desperto, or Chile Woke Up. Her guest is Nicola Garcia, an Emory University political anthropologist currently doing fieldwork in Santiago. They spoke from the midst of the uprising on October 29th. I'd really like to hear more about the historical um, social movements um, that this uprising has emerged from, especially since you mentioned the history of repression under Pinochet and seeing how quickly this social explosion uh, happened. It's obviously not coming out of nowhere. So on one hand, um, a lot of people who are much older have told me they haven't seen this level of unrest in Chile since the end of the dictatorship, um, which really speaks to how diffuse this um, kind of social explosion is throughout Chile. So um, this is taking the form of maybe 30 to 50 people um, getting together in the periphery of Santiago or in their neighborhoods or in their apartment complex. And then almost essentially starting marches from there. So one big form was like a casarolazo, which uh, literally means like banging a pot. Mm -hmm. So um, during curfew, neighbors will come out and bang pots and pans to protest the curfew, as well as protest um, this kind of state of exception or protest uh, the multitude of things that have um, come up. Uh, also, um, because everyone's been in the streets, protests and chants will start just because one group of people starts it and then everyone else joins in and then it almost becomes a spontaneous kind of like protest that emerges in the street just because everyone who's out right now is involved politically in these street politics. 
So that's something that really hasn't happened since the 80s in the end of dictatorship. And the other kind of historical movement this comes out of, um, one is definitely the student movement. So the 2011 student movement was um, brought before the, the protests on Friday was one of the biggest marches in Santiago. They had a million people going through the main street of Santiago, La Alameda, for um, what they said, a free education that's dignified and high quality. And um, that was also very centered in the universities, but also had broad support because, you know, parents want their kids to go to college, but it's too expensive here. Much like the U.S., you have to take out a bunch of student debt. Um, and if like, you know, you're a single parent or if you're a working class, school is a the pain for school is a huge burden. But I think one of the big differences, though, is whereas previously um, a whole host of um, student movements here in Chile have been organized through the student unions. So each university has a student union. So the Fetch is one for the University of Chile. And then Confetch is the um, confederation of student unions across Chile. And were those organizations back in 2011, and up until more recently, were the ones that would call for a march. And then other student organizations and student groups would share it. Here, um, the main difference is, is that while it is shared while students are in school, it is very much outside of these student union groups. So different Instagrams were formed, like one's called Funametro, which means it's explicit, but it means you know, this metro is bad. Um, <laughs> a few other ones, no problem. Um, and so, um, and it, because it exploded in the span of two weeks, a lot of the student unions only now are starting to call for marches and call for events. Whereas um, for the most part, this was um, on the basis of students who are, you know, going to hop the metro turnstiles after class together because they all have to get home. But it wasn't organized within these traditional student political channels. What are the other movements uh, that are coming together uh, to compose this this uprising? So if you have the major movements um, that are kind of inserted themselves into um, this kind of social explosion are um, the movement against the current pension system, IFP, which is privatized, um, as well as the current movement against the um, expensive and low-quality public health care system, which is called ISAPRE, and uh, a lot of other movements that have emerged the past two years against the um, various forms of social security here in Chile that have not been working for people. Um, also, more recently, there's been um, a push for the 40-hour work week, whereas you know, currently the um, full-time job is considered to be 45 hours a week. So actually, there was a major protest scheduled on the 20th of October for the 40-hour work week, which... It wasn't necessarily canceled. It just didn't happen because everyone who was involved in that movement joined into this um, movement that here is called Chile Desperto. So Chile woke up. Hmm. That's in, that's incredible that at the same time as they're trying to raise fair increases, they're also asking people to work more. So get up earlier, work five hours extra, which is not an insignificant amount. And people's responses to boycott fair, essentially, bring, set the price down to zero and to have this social explosion. Um, what's uh, labor's take in Chile? Like the student organizations, the political parties, this social explosion really took a bunch of labor unions by surprise. So um, none of them had a platform for how to respond to this because it went from mass evasions to, you know, the social explosion in the span of 24 hours. And a lot of it's been joining in. So even just walking around, I'll see, oh, the nurse union is out there marching and they call for their own march on like, you know, a Wednesday at noon. Um, there also has been calls for general strikes um, nearly weekly. So last week there was a national strike on Wednesday 
Yesterday was also a national strike. And so the kind of response to labor has been trying to go on strike and kind of push this movement into the kind of aspect of labor. Um, other labor unions that have been very active have been the dock workers, which dock workers uh, and ports of Chile in general account for about a fifth of the Chilean economy. And so um, the dock worker union president just called for um, a constitutional assembly, which is another kind of big demand that's been emerging about changing the Chilean constitution, because the constitution here was written during the dictatorship in 1981. And with the tradition of democracy, the way that tradition happened with elections is that the Chilean constitution now is the same constitution that was designed and engineered by um, the Pinochet government. So essentially, anyone who's trying to have these broader reforms, such as reforming pension, reforming minimum wage, reforming healthcare, is continually confronted with the problem that the constitution is designed to prevent any of that from happening. So the dock worker union president came out and said that there needs to be a constitutional assembly in which workers and Chilean people and unions are represented in the writing of this constitution. As well as um, more recently, there's been a strike in um, the lithium mines up in northern Chile. And basically, so Chile's um, mines account for a quarter of the Chilean economy. It, um, the copper mines here are the biggest copper mines in the world and are the basis of much of manufacturing in China, as well as like global electronics production. And um, copper mine workers, when they go on strike or when there is a labor dispute, um, they're organized to the point to where they threaten, if we don't get what we want from our employers, we will destroy these mines. Um, so they've been managing to um, get a lot of successes in the past 15 years of labor organizing. And unfortunately, because most of this I've seen in the news and just being in Santiago in urban centers, I am not too sure what their response has been to this movement. Um, I know that it still is also very sympathetic. It's time for a break. This is Los Prisioneros with Muevan Las Industrias, Move the Industries, off of the 1986 album Pateando Piedras, Kicking Stones. Los Prisioneros were a Chilean rock band formed in San Miguel, Santiago, Chile in 1979. Their controversial songs criticized socioeconomic structures, education, and economic policies and were used by Chilean youth to protest the military dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet. More on the uprising against Piñera's neoliberal policies in Chile when Interchange returns.
Welcome back to Interchange. Our show today is Chile Woke Up, featuring producer Bella Bravo's conversation with Nicola Garcia, a political anthropologist doing fieldwork in Santiago, Chile, and living in the midst of the uprising. In this segment, we discover the way the protests have taken shape following the makeup of neighborhoods from the city center to the suburbs. It seems like this social explosion is much bigger than any of these single tendencies, and it also sounds like it's bigger than Santiago. Uh, could you give us a sense of how far the protests uh, have spread? How big are they? And what are the sites of revolt that you're seeing? The protests at this point have spread throughout Santiago as well as throughout Chile. And it takes a lot of different forms on the basis of the neighborhoods that it explodes at. So to kind of portray the panorama of Santiago, first off, um, the protests, although they were most poignant and they started initially in the suburbs of Santiago, as well as the metro in the center, um, once the state of exception was announced and curfews were enacted, um, it expanded into the more middle-class neighborhoods. And the way that protests have taken shape in these different neighborhoods, as well as the police responses to them, have been markedly different. So here in Plaza Italia, which is the one of the major center plazas of the city. It's been a mix of people from all over the city coming here for protests. So um, on one hand, you have casolazos, the banging of pots and pans. You have dancing, marching bands, uh, indigenous peoples with indigenous flags or indigenous musical instruments coming in, um, participating in making the sounds of the march. You also have um, the guanaco, which is the um, water cannon tank that police use for crowd dispersal, as well as tear gas. Um, but then in this, the more poor suburbs, it's uh, a little bit more conflictual, as well as military patrolling, um, because it's very much tied to these economic issues of precarity. And then in more middle class neighborhoods, um, you see a lot more, a lot less casuelas, no, excuse me, uh, a lot less um, conflict, a lot less police repression, and a lot more um, casuelasos and chanting and traditional marches with signs. So, um, for example, last weekend, there was this um, meme that went around contrasting how in Plaza Nunoa, which is the center of a more traditionally middle-class neighborhood, you see um, this giant techno party where everyone's dancing. And um, they're talking about, you know, Pineda renounce. Um, and then in contrast, you see how there is this protest in uh, Pineda Len, which is a much more working-class neighborhood, and how there's the military there with guns. And so this protest, in part because it's against so many different issues and so many different like questions on the table, that the explosion is in part due to how um, across the different social sectors of Chilean society, people are finding some reason to basically warrant going out in the streets. And that also means that because of that, it um, is very heterogeneous. For someone who doesn't know about Chile until um, this uprising popped up in the news last week, what's the historical context uh, for this revolt? Augusto Pinochet um, staged a coup against uh, the then socialist president Salvador Allende. So with Salvador Allende, there was a host of um, like new welfare programs, um, the nationalization of the copper mines, building of apartment complexes and shanty towns, as well as this um, vision of a a socialist economic society within Chile. And uh, with Pinochet, there was a broad suite of economic reforms. Uh, people call Chile the quote-unquote laboratory of neoliberalism. 
because Pinochet brought in um, this group of economic um, economists from University of Chicago or Chilean, the Chilean University of Chicago called the Chicago Boys who were um, students of Milton Friedman. And so what the government did was establish um, a privatized welfare system, privatized the copper mines, privatized the um, metro, and essentially in any way in which the government was involved in the economy or in the infrastructure of Chile, they find ways in which to make it um, a basis of creating it as a business. And um, with the transition to democracy in the 90s, which was the result of both generalized and diffuse conflicts and protests throughout Chile, very similar to what's happening today, um, there was a plebiscite, so an election, which was saying, do we want more dictatorship of Pinochet or do we want to have elections and become a democracy? And naturally, the elections um, vote was yes. And so there's this transition to democracy. However, the um, economic system created in the dictatorship, as well as the constitution, um, did not change. And so fast forward um, about 29 years until today, this past year has um, been host to a wide variety of scandals uh, within the current government. In essence, because um, both the current president, Sebastián Pineda, his cabinet, and a lot of other appointees um, that uh, he has made, um, were these are part of this political elite in Chile who made their wealth during the dictatorship, uh, as well as have managed their positions as ways in which to benefit the companies that um, the government partners with to um, provide everything from the city's metro system to the electricity to the pensions. And these scandals take the shape of um, the current minister of transportation, um, spent um, an extremely high um, amount of money on these new electric buses in Santiago. Or more recently, it turns up the, the equivalent of the IRS here in Chile, the SSI, uh, has been partnering with different companies and has been allowing them to evade taxes, as well as a whole host of current people in political office have been evading taxes. This is Interchange on WFHB, and this is Ana Tiju's Ante Piñera rap, hashtag Casaralazzo. Today, producer Bella Bravo brings us Chile Desperto, or Chile Woke Up. Her guest is Nicola Garcia, an Emory University political anthropologist currently doing fieldwork in Santiago. They spoke from the midst of the uprising on October 29th. Um, there's been a scandal with the supermarkets where um, supermarkets have been selling tainted food or have been um, working to like enter a new neighborhood by lowering the prices of food, out-competing with the local kind of like small food markets and then raising the prices. And so the current year's scandals has basically been this general sentiment that the current government is basically running Chile like a, um, almost like a, um, a hedge fund for these different companies. And is basically working to like benefit the various monopolies that um, run the city's infrastructure or country's infrastructure, everything from the supermarkets to the transportation system to the um, pension system. And um, this also ties in directly with the indigenous question in Chile, where the past 15 years has been um, site of increased antagonism between Mapuche communities in the south who are calling for a return of lands that were um, taken from them during the dictatorship. And the dictatorship rearranged the reservation system here and was sold to logging companies, where the current government has sent um, thousands of troops within the special forces called Comanda Jungla, um, the jungle commandos, uh, down to essentially defend um, these 
forestry plantations from indigenous direct action. And um, this has basically led to a lot of Mapuche youth being killed by police, uh, very much like um, how in the U.S. where you have this racial profile and also lead to police brutality. And so last year in October, uh, in response to the death of Mapuche youth who was killed by police in the South, there were uh, riots and protests all throughout Santiago. And so if I was going to kind of give a kind of summary of the kind of historical context, uh, on one tier, there has been this entire generation of Chilean youth who, despite being told that they live in the most prosperous and democratic country in Latin America, have seen that this democratic system is not too far off from the dictatorship system of Pinochet. And then despite this huge explosion of economic growth, they are seeing this extreme inequality that these public-private partnerships and these forms of government management of infrastructure has taken, in which the top 2% of Chile lives the same quality of life as the top 2% of Germany, whereas the bottom 5% of Chile has the same quality of life as the bottom 5% of Mongolia or Maldivia. So essentially, everything that's been happening in the past three weeks, from the mass evasion to the um, current um, social explosion, is basically people realizing, or I guess not even say realizing, more of um, understanding that all these things that we've been told our entire lives uh, we should be thankful for, such as this democratic system and this economic system, is actually not working and we need something different. So this incredible disparity in wealth uh, in connection with the scandals and the lies of neoliberalism um, are what set up this revolt to explode in the way that it on the scale that it did in two weeks. Yes. So the scale I've been reading in the news is novel. There are millions of people who have been a part of these marches in Santiago. Um the revolt has spread to several uh, major cities in Chile. Um, what uh, is novel about this struggle compared with movements of the past? And even you've mentioned a lot of the uh, movements in the recent past. Um, so what's novel about what's happening now? One helpful way to think about how this is novel is looking at this as um, the range of street politics as like a form. So um, in doing my research um, before the social explosion, a lot of indigenous peoples I've talked with, as well as a lot of um, leftists involved in political party organizing, um, have come out of a history of street protests. And a lot of them, after, you know, say 10 or 15 years of doing street protests, are very cynical of taking the streets to march, to chant, to um, kind of make their voices heard. Um, so on one hand, like, like from the 2011 student movement, we're saying that Protests don't do anything. You know, we took the streets. We had a million person march. Nothing happens. We need to think about other ways of kind of like doing politics. Likewise, a lot of indigenous peoples after 15 years of this growing indigenous movement um, are also frustrated with just how street protests here are both extremely repressed by the police, where even if you have 30 people and you try to march on the road, um, the guanaco will come out and tear gas will come out and you'll be dispersed. And so... They see that. So even if like, you know, you're being combative with the police or you're um, taking the streets in a very um, pacifist way, you um, kind of risk getting injured. But then also you don't necessarily produce any real political change. And what's not with this struggle is that that entire framework of what else can we do besides street protests has really taken on a new form, in part because the street protests of mass evasion was focused on blocking vital infrastructure instead of you know being in the streets and protesting. 
And that is part of the reason I think why it exploded the way it did. On one hand, this um, kind of blocking the vital infrastructure in which at this point, the entire metro system in Santiago has been gone for two weeks, which isn't something that's ever happened before. This is Interchange on WFHB, and this is Ana Tiju's Ante Piñera rap, hashtag Caceralazzo. Today, producer Bella Bravo brings us Chile Desperto, or Chile Woke Up. Her guest is Nicola Garcia, an Emory University political anthropologist currently doing fieldwork in Santiago. They spoke from the midst of the uprising on October 29th. In terms of vital infrastructure, we're talking about the transportation systems, but also uh, stores and um, government offices um, and the property destruction has been extensive. Um, I've seen pictures in the news of subway stations um, lit on fire, even an entire skyscraper, uh, and any everything from benches, street signs, uh, which also is state infrastructure, um, and uh, merchandise from inside of the stores that's been looted, used to build up barricades um, to protect in neighborhoods from uh, the police and military intrusion. Um, so how does this level of property destruction compare with past movements? Um, what role does property destruction play in this specific uprising? Yeah, the scale of property destruction here is unprecedented, even during the end of dictatorship and during the movements against the dictatorship. Property destruction has been such a defining part about this movement, and which is very different from previous struggles in Chile. 15% of all grocery stores have been burnt down in Chile. One-sixth of all Walmarts are looted. Yeah, so the looting has been, on one hand, the defining feature of this, which from a U.S. perspective um, is a lot more normal, in which if there is a riot occurring in a city, stores get looted. And uh, it definitely speaks to the um, kind of both the precarity of Chile, the inequality in which so many items are available in theory, in sense you can buy them, but out of reach in the sense that they're expensive. So um, this kind of like very much pragmatic form of street politics where because this movement is so defined by this precarious generation of youth and um, these suburban residents who are just living paycheck to paycheck, struggling to get by, when they take the streets, the streets take the form of, or they're actually the streets take a form of giving their basic needs with the forms of, um, say, like arson. Uh, a lot of the times this has been against institutions that have defined how people live life or get their needs met, but also have failed them. Uh, so, for example, nearly every single bank in the Alameda has been, at this point, broken into multiple times. Mm -hmm. So the bank by my house has um, been set fire four times last week. So protesters will set it on fire. The firefighters will come and put it out, as well as every single street sign in this neighborhood has been ripped down for barricades. And um, this also is a very um, pragmatic form of politics that comes from the suburbs, where people build barricades in part because there's this um, kind of anger against these kinds of forms of infrastructure, but then also because it keeps people who are taking the streets safe because um, it just takes one angry driver to just drive straight through and hurt protesters. So a lot of times when people see, say, a picture of a flaming barricade, um, if they have this kind of sense of, oh, this is violence, they often um, won't see the people who maybe are in front of the barricade directing the traffic and telling drivers, hey, this road's closed, go that way. Or they may not see the um, police tanks that are unable to advance because um, a barricade on fire prevents them from going forward. 
And so um, first step to a lot of major street protests that are, say, pacifist, where everyone from the neighborhood is out banging pots of pans and singing, is building these barricades because it um, protects people on the street from any form of um, violence happening to them, whether it be from a passerby who's in a car and just is not paying attention and might hit someone, or the police where they're trying to disperse the crowd. But then also another kind of big thing with this property destruction I want to bring up is the question of um, police frame-ups, which is called montaje. So there has been um, a lot of conspiracy theories proliferating right now, which really does speak to the kind of uncertain present in Chile, to where um, a lot of people think that the fire of the Enel building, Enel being the electricity company that um, their headquarters was set on fire the first night of the unrest, which really triggered the state of emergency. And that was people the think, sky, and that was the skyscraper, the photos of the skyscraper that I saw on fire. Is that true? Yes, that was a skyscraper. Yeah. So uh, the, the fire started in 11 story. And a lot of people are saying, how could a protester fire an incendiary device that high up? Um, so people think it's an inside job. Um, also, the six metro trains that were set on fire, uh, prosecutors investigating them and finds that, found that these uh, metro trains, the only way to have gotten to them was to go through a restricted area that um, required like a special key and like access. And then there's also all these videos proliferating right now where like people are looking at like recording Carabineros. So Carabineros are the national police of Chile um, doing what appears to be starting grocery short store fires or um, s- setting buses on fire. So in downtown, there was six buses just together that were burnt. And people shared a video of these buses being escorted by a police um, convoy to that location. There's a long history of police in Chile framing um, protesters. So here in Santiago in 2011, uh, there was a bombing in a metro station that when they did an investigation, turned out it was done by the police to frame local anarchists. And then more recently in the past year, um, there's been a lot of cases of framings of indigenous peoples, indigenous rights activists in southern Chile, which went so far as the police... um, claiming to have gotten evidence from people's cell phones using this new software called Atorcha, uh, which would de-encrypt like, um, encrypted messaging applications like WhatsApp or Telegram. And it turned out that the police basically put the um, evidence on these people's phones, but then also lied about this entire kind of like police surveillance software that they used. And so in this kind of moment of uncertainty, I don't think it's actually very helpful to try to discern, okay, what was actually what a protester did in these kinds of contexts? Was it, did they start this fire? Was it the police? But more, I think um, one of the big roles that property destruction does or has played is that it has really shown the kind of illegitimacy of the police and the military in this current movement and the current government to the point to where people don't know and don't believe they ever will know to what extent the fires were started by the government itself or started by the police to um, justify the state of exception or justify increased police repression or um, kind of like doing these acts of damage in order to paint protesters as delinquents versus the kind of pacifist people who are banging pots and pans. Yeah, I think um, anyone in the U.S., when they hear about these frame-ups, they'll think of the move bombing and they'll think of the Black Power Movement. It feels very familiar. Yeah. 
It's time for another break. This is Shock, another from Anna Tiju, off of 2012's La Bala, or The Bullet. Shock was inspired by Naomi Klein's book, The Shock Doctrine, which details how Chicago school free market policies are implemented through the exploitation of national crises. While citizens are too emotionally and physically distracted by disasters or upheavals to mount an effective resistance. Stay with us for more with Nicola Garcia from Santiago, Chile, when Interchange returns. Welcome back to Interchange. Today, producer Bella Bravo speaks with political anthropologist Nicola Garcia from Santiago, Chile. Garcia has been conducting fieldwork and living in the midst of the current uprising against the government of billionaire media mogul Sebastian Piñera. In this segment, the uprising springs from the realization that the economic is political, and we hear how Piñera's government has responded to the revolt. You mentioned the state of exception um, much earlier in our conversation, um, and so I'm wondering if you could explain that a little bit more um, and how this specific um, government mechanism has been uh, enacted in Santiago. Yes, so um, to first go over the state of exception. So um, Pineda called for a constitutional state of exception, um, which here in Chile can only be declared by the president. It can only um, be for 15 days, but the president can extend it for 15 days. And um, the president has to have a constitutionally recognized reason for calling a state of exception. So in this case, it was a state of emergency. Um, and this is the first time a state of emergency has been, has been declared since the 2010 earthquake here in Santiago. And um, a state of exception can only be declared within a delineated region. In the case of the first weekend, the state of exception was only for the metropolitan region of Santiago and then expanded as the protests expanded to Valparaíso, Concepción, um, to the point to where the last state of exception was declared in Atacama, which is a northern desert with very sparse population. Wow. And um, yeah, to where like there's videos of a town of 30,000 people and there are 15,000 people in the streets. 
and it allows for the military to be deployed as well as civil, civil liberties to be suspended. So right to assemble, free speech, and it can be um, extended for more time, but that requires congressional approval. And so with the state of exception, this is where basically um, the management of security of the city and the regions is in the control of the military. I I have these assumptions about yeah about these like distinct categories this uh, the economic from the state but Chile there really isn't that distinction um, because of the history of neo neoliberalism where there was this idea that you that Chile transitioned to uh, a democracy but we're seeing in how they're protecting private infrastructure as much as state infrastructure and honestly how the Chilean people see that there isn't a distinction they're going after the supermarkets that have uh, high bread prices as much as um, they're uh, evading the metro fare I guess which is also private um, but they're tearing down the street signs so it's really helping me see that and uh, how the police moving out, how the protesters move, that there isn't this distinction between the state and the economic system uh, in yeah, Chile. Not just in Chile, obviously, but elsewhere too. Speaking to how people are seeing this connection between yeah, the political and the economic is several like small-scale produce vendors, and um, they're called FedS here. So a little market where you know people sell goods, and um, it's typically cheaper than supermarkets. Uh, were looted uh, last weekend. And a lot of people have this conspiracy theory that it's the partnership between the supermarkets and the police where they're paying people to go and loot to make protesters look bad. I don't necessarily see the merits of like trying to figure out and like decide, is this true, is this not true? But more to think that any sort of property destruction, because the government is seen as illegitimate between vast swaths of the population, forms of vandalism, looting, or property destruction that kind of like hurts local people is seen as being some form of conspiracy where the supermarkets are like working with the government or the police to make that happen. Yeah, that's fascinating that there's just people can't trust the, as you said, the institutions that failed them. And so uh, in this moment of uprising, there's no there's no point in even trying to get down to the bottom of the truth because it doesn't matter. This is Interchange on WFHB, and this is Ana Tiju's Ante Piñera rap, hashtag Casaralazzo. Today, producer Bella Bravo brings us Chile Desperto, or Chile Woke Up. Her guest is Nicola Garcia, an Emory University political anthropologist currently doing fieldwork in Santiago. They spoke from the midst of the uprising on October 29th. Let's talk then about uh, Pinera's government, how the government has responded to the revolt. Um, and I'm really wondering here about whether he has support within his own government. How long can he, sus he sustain his resistance to the resistance? That's a great question. Uh, currently, Pineda has the lowest approval rating in the kind of democratic era. It's at 14%. Oh, God. Um, yeah. He... Um, in terms of support from the military, um, he has support of the military and the Carabineros, as well as um, the conservative factions within the Chilean government. I think his support is pretty strong with that faction, but a lot of current analysts think that he will resign within the next two months. And part of the kind of also the ways in which he's responded to these protests has been 
to kind of pretend to grant concessions, but then basically not change anything. So for example, the only kind of social reforms he's offered were in a presidential um, announcement he gave last week, which was he's going to give 20% more per person in the pension system. By him, I mean the government. Um, the government's going to basically like create a cap where if you have a extreme medical condition, they will cover the rest of the costs of your medicine and your treatment. Um, they will increase the um, amount of money they give into minimum wage. So um, basically it comes out to like 40,000 pesos or maybe like $80 a month increase in minimum wage, um, as well as um, they will like stabilize the cost of electricity to where um, people get a subsidy in contrast, they're, they're giving more money to electric companies to subsidize the cost for everyone. So on one hand, everyone hears these reforms and just thinks the asterisk, 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 where, okay, so you just increased minimum wage, but just for the lowest quintile. Or, um, you know, you've given more to pensions, but that's for like the lowest quintile of pensions. Um, you're talking about medicine, but only for a certain number of people in Chile who qualify for this thing. So because of just the generalized precarity and the generalized unrest, no one hears that and thinks, oh, that's going to make my life better. And the second side of that is that everyone hears, oh, you're giving more money to the privatized pension company. You're giving more money to the electricity company. You're giving more money to the privatized healthcare company, more money to the pharmacies. And people just don't trust that the money the government's giving to these companies is going to I'm not going to say they were trickle down, that's a little too cliche, um, is going to arrive at the um, kind of like improved kind of cost of living or like monthly salary of the actual people there, um, which is a case to where like with the indigenous communities I work with, um, a lot of them deal with this constantly where the government announces, oh, we're going to give 40 million US dollars to these development initiatives where, you know, you need a refrigerator, you can use this to buy a refrigerator, you need insulation for your house, you need um, to like fix electricity, because it's not decoded, it's a fire hazard. But because there's so many um, kind of steps to go through where you have to work with these certain companies, the government partners with which everything, every service they provide and everything um, they sell you is extremely overpriced. Um, the amount of money is little you get may seem like a lot, but then because of all these um, companies that basically make a ton of money off of government taxes, um, basically means that it doesn't go as far as the government says it does. And then they say, oh, you're poor, not because of the failure of these social systems, but because of, you know, you're lazy, you're not working enough, etc. And so that's the side of the responses to the social welfare reforms. The other side is one thing he announced this week, or this weekend rather, was that in response to the protests, um, specifically the million and a half person march on Friday, um, he was going to sack several of his cabinet members, particularly those who have um, been the most antagonistic towards these protests and put in new ones. So one is um, the Minister of Interior, Shadwick, who, um, so for example, he was the um, leader of the Catholic University Student Union when he was in college, but he was appointed by Pinochet in that position while he was in college. And um, so there's pictures of him standing right next to Pinochet. So he got sacked and replaced by someone else. Um, but then that person yesterday also got sacked within 30 minutes because the first person Pineda wanted to put into that position back in 2013 was on the record calling the Human Rights Council the quote unquote 
ATM machine for the left. Keep in mind, this is the same day the UN is coming down here to do a human rights investigation of the military and the police and their um, attacks on protesters. And essentially, once he announced who is being replaced in the cabinet and who they're being replaced by, um, no one's appeased because it's the same kind of cast of characters from the same political party who um, both you know come from families or they themselves got rich off of working within the Pinochet government or the companies that were aligned with the Pinochet government. And uh, they're essentially just kind of shuffling everyone around to where there's no actual structural change or even change in the government, despite all these um, protests and this general uprising. So the government has put forward various social reforms on the table, um, attempted to make changes in the government, and also sent the military um, and national police out into the streets. Um, do you think any of these three responses from the government is either going to uh, mollify or uh, curtail the protests in the coming weeks? After the um, huge march on Friday, um, this weekend was relatively quiet. And by that, I mean, you know, my street had street battles between protesters and the police. There were barricades everywhere throughout the city. And a lot of people who have been inspired by this movement were scared that, um, oh, after this huge march, people are tired and have to go back to work and this might fizzle out. But yesterday there was a huge march um, and just other marches throughout the city that all basically, not intentionally, but in the end, reconvened um, at Plaza Italia. And um, today is supposed to be the second biggest march in Chilean history. And so I don't think that anything short of major structural change will pacify this movement. But at the same time, I think that the need to go back to work, um, the need to pay rent, the need to um, you know support a family if you have one, is um, the one thing that will kind of keep this level of tensity from being sustained. And part of the reason why I don't think that the government's responses are really um, adequate in terms of um, nullifying is because so much of the, their responses, such as the state of emergency, the return of military to the streets, has been traumatizing for so many people. Um, like, for example, nightly helicopters fly, or military helicopters fly overhead. Um, and for a lot of older people I've been speaking to, it freaks them out because when they were living in the poblaciones, in the kind of poor neighborhoods throughout Santiago, uh, helicopters would fly overhead and shoot through the tin roofs. And they had many friends who were killed that way. Um, also, with the disappearances that have been happening, um, it harkens back to how the Pinochet dictatorship disappeared thousands of people, where people just had no idea where they were. Uh, more recently, um, at the protest yesterday, the Bacadama metro station, uh, fires were set at every single entrance to that station. And people were tagging, this is a torture center. And um, people are connecting this Bacadama station to the National Stadium, where the National Stadium was a concentration camp in the first months of the Pinochet dictatorship, where I believe 40,000 people were um, tortured, detained, disappeared. This is where the famous Chilean um, songwriter Victor Jara um, had his hands broken and was executed. And like Bacadama, when people go to a sports game at the National Stadium, are constantly reminded that this is a place where people were killed by the government. This is Interchange on WFHB, and this is Ana Tiju's Ante Piñera rap, hashtag Caceralazzo. Today, producer Bella Bravo brings us Chile Desperto, or Chile Woke Up. 
Her guest is Nicola Garcia, an Emory University political anthropologist currently doing fieldwork in Santiago. They spoke from the midst of the uprising on October 29th. I do not believe necessarily that things return to normal because there's all these new kind of feelings of, okay, this is where these um, police repressions happen. This is where people were tortured. And this is making people talk about the dictatorship and talk about these experiences that they haven't before, if only because it's happening again. And um, also one thing that a lot of young people are doing now is they're sharing videos of police brutality at a, everywhere. So if I go to my Instagram, um, like celebrities show, you know, police attacking protesters. They show the, um, the effects of um, the Petit um, Gomez, which are um, birdshot that police are using now to shoot at protesters. And they're showing, yeah, police attacking peaceful protesters and circulating photos of people who've been disappeared or people who've been killed by police. And as one friend said it, the Pinochet dictatorship could do nothing if there was WhatsApp back in the 70s. Whoa. And um, it's a scale of um, circulating police brutality videos, which as someone from the U.S. Um, is really hard for me because, you know, with Black Lives Matter, with the Rodney King videos... Um, it's something that's so um, present that, yes, the police, um, police brutality is a major issue and police can act with impunity. I don't need to see it. But here, because so many people, if not you know, the older generation, but young people and their family members, their family friends were um, disappeared to the dictatorship and they don't know what happened to them. Here they can see, OK, the government's calling all these protesters delinquents. And that's why the military is here, to curb this delinquency. But we can see that they're just attacking protesters. So whereas like during the dictatorship, a lot of political dissidents were um, disappeared um, or um, killed by police because the police said they were armed communist guerrilla groups. And so the dictatorship's whole argument being that we're here to establish law and order because there's this whole basically network of insurgent communists who are um, attacking police and attacking the military and waging a war. So fast forward, um, the day after the explosion of social unrest in Chile, Piñera also announced, we are at war with a um, powerful and relentless enemy. And so people are making this huge connection between, okay, so the way in which the government responded to this unrest is nearly the same way the Pinochet dictatorship responded to forms of unrest and political dissidents in the 70s. And we're seeing that despite the government saying that the military is back in the streets to, um, you know, keep the peace in poor neighborhoods and keep people from burning buildings and looting, we're seeing them just attacking protesters and hurting people. And so especially old people, although a lot of them are afraid to leave their houses, um, also a lot of people are in the streets. This kind of like huge connection between kind of the dictatorship and the state of exception and this period where the military is back on the streets is making it to the point to where no one thinks it can go back to normal without any structural change, if only because of this fear that it's so easy for these kind of oppressive dictatorship era tactics to be deployed again. And so far, the your sense is that the social reforms, cabinet changes that have been offered um, have been either insin- insincere or uh, insufficient to allow things to return to normal. Yes, I think so. I think in part, um, the experiences of the past week has just fundamentally changed how people like relate to their neighbors or relate to just like their neighborhood or their daily life to where, I mean, things can go back to normal in the sense that the metro will be rebuilt so I can get to work. Um, the street signs will get repaired. The bank will get repaired. 
But um, the fact that, you know, I'll walk by this bank every day and remember when it was just a shell or um, I'll walk down my block and remember when, yeah, people ripped out all the picnic benches and put it there. Or I'll remember how, you know, there's this time where I would have to run to my, I mean, just, you know, someone who's living in this time, not myself personally. These are kind of stories that I've heard. Um, I will have to like run, hug a wall, keep my hands up and go into my apartment building because um, police were firing tear gas or shooting water cannons down my street. Or um, actually this happened to me where the um, it was like a quiet day on Sunday and um a police truck came by and just sprayed tear gas on the sidewalk. And at the cafe I was at, the person, um, the priest had just run out and closed the door. And um, everyone inside got tear gassed. And thankfully, someone had like a Mylock solution to treat people. And so I think that these kinds of experiences of kind of being together with people and meeting new people just in this kind of context of unrest, um, it's kind of sense that like, even if it doesn't come to these structural changes that people right now are demanding, it is going to lead to changes that um, you can't even predict right now. It's time for our final break. This is Cordillera by Alex Anwanter, off of the 2016 album Amiga. Anwanter performed this fight song at a peaceful rally in Santiago on Monday, October 21st, but he said he was dodging bullets at a march on Wednesday. Stay with us for more Chile Desperto when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is Chile Woke Up with political anthropologist Nicola Garcia, who spoke with producer Bella Bravo via Skype from Santiago, Chile. In this final segment, we focus on the way the government's repressive tactics, like implementing curfews, has actually strengthened community resolve in Santiago. mentioned um, the neighborhood kitchens that have started, um, which also kind of feels similar to like people meeting each other through this unrest. Um, so I'm wondering like how has uh, 
how have these curfews impacted um, people in their neighborhoods? How are people organizing? Um, and so, yeah, how are how are people finding each other? Because my neighborhood um, is so close to where the major protests are happening. Um, maybe the hour before curfew, the police clear everyone out. And um, since, you know, the police are maybe blocked from my house, you know, I'm unable to leave my house. And so um, our apartment had the sense of it was just strangely quiet. And then just the thought of, oh, I can't leave my house. And you kind of feel like claustrophobia. But then when curfew hits, you hear people banging pots and pans all throughout the city, which is a dictatorship era protest. And so people protesting the curfew are just banging pots and pans. And so and you just you know look at your window and just see people looking out their windows, banging pots and pans, you're banging them. And just a sense of like, oh, okay, even though I can't be out with people right now, or I'm just hearing that we're all this kind of shared experience of both, you know, being subjected to this very repressive um, kind of response to general unrest, but then also protesting it together. And in the um, kind of like more residential neighborhoods, people with their neighbors, will go out together in the street and they will do casa lasso for hours past curfew and um <clears throat> they will like build a barricade to kind of protect their casa lasso um, other people will like you know go out together with their, their apartment building and um will make pots and pans and then if the police come we'll run it back inside and so whereas in previous social movements so much of politics happened where oh yes i'm going out to the march and then coming back home, uh, this kind of dynamic with the curfew where you have to be pretty close to where you live just in case anything bad happens um, really forces or enables, I should say, you to engage in these forms of politics with your neighbors in daily life where you're doing it during curfew or you're doing it like as you're getting home from work. And then that also kind of connects to the um, kind of neighborhood autonomous and the forms of politics that are emerging right now to where um, in part because, yeah, the metro shut down, it's really hard to get throughout the city. And with the huge street protests, traffic's a jam, buses don't really run. And so for the first week, people were um, getting together and forming neighborhood assemblies. And I knew about about seven throughout the city, and it's since expanded this past week to where neighborhood assemblies are popping up in different VS. VS being like in a pub, kind of public apartment, apartment complex housing. And they def- it first went from last week, people just kind of sharing their like trauma and sharing like their feelings and just their disbelief this is happening. This is also the site where like older people are talking about how this is reminding the dictatorship and how they're scared that this is just going to bring back the legitimacy for military takeover. And um, then maybe like a few days later after the general assembly, excuse me, neighborhood assembly started happening, a lot of questions about um, like neighborhood needs start coming up. So um, with Oyakamun, for example, Oyakamuns have been kind of a staple of working class neighborhoods in Santiago for decades. And um, kind of like when it's not in a moment of a giant protest, it's where a lot of older women will prepare a ton of food and will sell it every day for like a lunch for 2,000 pesos, the equivalent of maybe three and a half dollars. And so it's a way in which um, working class folks can get a full meal because it's a ton of food. But it's also a way in which um, these mostly maybe stay-at-home moms um, or retired women can um, get some extra income to subsidize their, um, their their really low pensions or get some more money. And 
what we're seeing now is that the Oya Comuna is being run within like neighborhood, um, what do they have casinos? How would I translate that? Um, neighborhood councils, essentially. Great. So it's happening in a much more public place. It's not just run out of someone's house, sometimes run people's houses. A lot more young kids are getting involved in Oya Comun, Um, And it's being increased in scale with the idea that, okay, we need to feed people who are going out in the streets. Um, so like in my neighborhood, it's because I'm living in the part of town where this is people from all over the city come to engage in protests. It's also a more upper class neighborhood where there's no history of Oyakamon. People here have started doing it because they see all these young kids who are coming here and they know that everything in this neighborhood costs money. So it's a way to um, kind of like reach out and get to know people who are coming here as well as get to know sympathetic neighbors. So um, yesterday I was at Oyakamon and this old lady came down and like gave the equivalent of $10 to the people who are putting it on and thanked them and said, this is so great. This initiative is happening. Um, I'm always down here giving people water, giving people lemon for tear gas, let me use my bathrooms. And so here it's less of a um, kind of like pre-existing form of neighborhood autonomy that um, is being mobilized for protest, but more of something that people who live here but are from much more working class neighborhoods are bringing in and then meeting sympathetic neighbors that way. This is Interchange on WFHB, and this is Ana Tiju's Ante Piñera rap, hashtag Caseralazzo. Today, producer Bella Bravo brings us Chile Desperto, or Chile Woke Up. Her guest is Nicola Garcia, an Emory University political anthropologist currently doing fieldwork in Santiago. They spoke from the midst of the uprising on October 29th. You mentioned the curfews. Uh, how are people living under them? How is that affecting people's lives? So I think for the younger generation, it's giving an experience of what life was like under the dictatorship, which is horrifying. Um, so during the dictatorship, there was curfews nightly. Um, and that was just a part of daily life. And people are learning from their parents about what living under curfew was like and how it was a um, just defining factor of basically how you live. And um, so as one friend said to me when curfews were first enacted, we live under dictatorship now. Like what's a dictatorship besides having a curfew? So like just in terms of like what it means to live life, even in a democratic era, if you have a curfew, this feeling of, yeah, we're basically in a dictatorship right now. Um, the other side of that too is um, people aren't feeling safe to walk around the streets late at night during curfew, particularly women. Um, I had one friend who um, was walking home and um, this van of police drove by, stopped, turned the lights on her and said, hey, where are you going? And she said, I'm going home. And they said, run. And she was horrified. She was like, okay, there's because curfew, the streets die down and the only people out are people trying to get home, the police and the military, and this just doesn't feel safe. The police feel they can act with impunity, right. which is um, what they did in the dictatorship. And also, within this past week, there have been countless cases, of about 100 cases of reported sexual assaults of police and military against people. Uh, one of the people who was killed um, in these protests most recently, um, he was arrested getting home from work after curfew and was found dead in his cell. And the police said it was a suicide. His family are trying to to um, get the recordings of the um, cell to um, kind of launch an investigation. But the police are saying that the um, cameras in the cell weren't working at that moment in which she committed suicide. And so curfews basically create a space in which people are not necessarily feeling safe, but then also 
that's directly because of the police and military management of um, the kind of maintaining public order. And again, these institutions that are supposed to be working for people, supposed to be protecting prisoners, they fail. Yes, exactly. And the feeling that they're not failing just because they're unable to fulfill their mission, but because they're actively engaging in the same forms of repressive practices as they did in the dictatorship is part of what has escalated this scenario into this um, giant social upheaval that we see today. Do you have the sense that this is a leaderless movement? Have there been any either like movement celebrities or um, uh, any specific tendencies that have tried to take on and like speak as a representative for... uh, uh, for the uprising? Honestly, no. Um, I think because of the scale, it's relatively um, anonymous almost. But then um, I think that the ways in which people have kind of contributed to everything going on has um, led to some, you know, like celebrities being recognized. So Alex Anwantir is um, this Chilean pop star. He um, is also like, you know, the first openly gay Chilean pop star. And he um, wasn't basically like he was going to play a concert on Saturday, but because of the curfew, um, they turned the concert into this big free public festival. And the festival was for um, the Constitutional Assembly. So like making a new constitution. And um, photos went viral of him like, you know, in the protests, like with the... um, Encapuchados. Encapuchados is equivalent to like the black block here. So people who like, you know, wear bandanas, wear masks. And so there's videos of him with these kids masked up running from tear gas and running from guanacos. Wow. And out there like, you know, with like lemons and like getting cheated with tear gas. And so all the kids are just like, oh my God, Alex, what with the like hero? And um, so I think like because this is a site where it's so big and so multifaceted that no one person or no one organization is even really capable of speaking for it. Or if they try, no one can really hear them. Um, these kinds of practices that individuals do um, kind of like lend them to be, you know, like seen as celebrities in the movement because they're by just by virtue of participating, which is also the case with like Instagram where celebrities who are, um, you know, posting information, posting news, posting, um, you know, communiques of, oh yes, this is something to do. Um, and see as being sympathetic also kind of emerges being like, you know, celebrities in the movement, but only in the fact that if when people need to get information because they want to know what's happening, they're the people who people can turn to to see what's happening and turn to to get information. Uh, why are people carrying around lemons? So people are carrying around lemons because um, when you get hit with tear gas, um, you eat the lemon. And so it stops the stinging um, for breathing. And um, actually, they kind of like just how every single street, like you'll be walking around just even going to work and you'll be like, oh, um, there's some digital tear gas. Um, people just carry lemons now in general because you'll need it if you, you know, are trying to breathe, but you're getting the, we'll call the spicy air. Um, also, what um, is different about this movement compared to like the student movement um, is that whereas in other protests previously, people would take a public space like a park or a plaza until the tear gas comes and then run away. Um, now, everyone is carrying spray bottles with um, baking soda solution. So you get this kind of like dynamic where there's the protest in the back where people are making pots and pans and dancing and the protest in the front where people are um, building barricades and 
kind of like defending the space from the police evicting it. And then tear gas will come in, people will kick it back or extinguish it. And then people from the back line, front line will run to the back and there'll be dozens of people or hundreds of people with spray bottles. And so they'll, you know, people care, hold up a spray bottle, hold up a bag of lemons. People come over and be like, oh, spray me. And then they get like, you know, baking soda solution for their eyes and then get a lemon and then go back to the front. Incredible. And part of it's like, it's very economic because, you know, lemons are cheap, baking soda is cheap. And people who, even if they, you know, don't feel safe being at the front lines where you're subjected to birdshot, um, the water cannon, um, are bringing these things because, you know, they support that and see that. This is the things people need to get treated with tears. This is Interchange on WFHB, and this is Ana Tiju's Ante Piñera rap, hashtag Caceralazzo. Today, producer Bella Bravo brings us Chile Desperto, or Chile Woke Up. Her guest is Nicola Garcia, an Emory University political anthropologist currently doing fieldwork in Santiago. They spoke from the midst of the uprising on October 29th. That leads me to how these uh, protests fit into this global wave of revolt that we're seeing. There are street conflicts and uprisings in Hong Kong. There's the Yellow Vest Movement in uh, Paris. There's the indigenous struggles in Ecuador. Um, and honestly, the list goes on and on. There are dozens of them. How does Chile fit into this wave? Um, and the reason why I say that that leads me to is because there have been some pretty iconic images from Hong Kong of uh, protesters um, following uh, tear gas canisters and spraying them with uh, like super soakers and other kinds of like spray bottles. Uh, so yeah, how does how does this all fit together? Is Chile learning from these other uprisings or is it singular? So I think structurally, Chile is incredibly linked to these other protests. Um, tactically, I somewhat disagree and only because um, Chile has a long history of street protests and tactics, especially because of just the massive scale of um, police violence with tear gas and water cannons to where um, people have been, you know, covering their faces since protests is in dictatorship because back then, if the police could identify you, you'd, you know, get killed, get disappeared, go to jail, be tortured. And um, so a lot of old people who are in these protests now also cover their face. And um, a lot of these kinds of tactics emerge because of um, the fact that these kinds of forms of crowd control have been used by the government against both peaceful and more um, kind of conflictual protests alike um, for the past 30 years as well. But I do think what is kind of connected with these other movements is one thing I see is all these movements are based off of either a new law, a new tax, or um, a governmental response to a political movement that caused the situation to escalate and kind of almost reveal just the illegitimacy of the entire political order in the eyes of many. So that's to say that, you know, he, like here and in um, Ecuador, the um, movement started against a raise in tax that would disproportionately affect the poorest sectors of these countries and these sectors being extremely unequal. And so the movements against these taxes and their government response to them basically called into question and challenged just the entire legitimacy of the system to where it's not necessarily the straw that broke the camel's back, but more of um, in saying, okay, this is 
unbearable and the government saying, deal with it. The realization that, okay, this democratic system, this economic order isn't working for us. Similarly with like Hong Kong, um, when it started as, you know, the extradition bill to um, kind of extradite wealthy elite from um, fleeing the country and avoiding trial became this whole issue of, you know, Chinese control over Hong Kong is not tenable because of, you know, the incredible amount of surveillance, repression of civil liberties, and our lack of democracy to where the entire um, kind of like cabinet of people who manage Hong Kong are appointed by a Chinese elite. And to where what started as there's this new bill that people are protesting turned into the economic system or the political system in which bills like this come into being is something we don't want. So one major link that all these um, protests in this global river revolt also have in common is um, the issue of precarity um, to where the, um, the management of these different countries has led to extreme inequality, has led to high costs of living, low qualities of life, to um, basically everyone have everyone in a vast majority of society living paycheck to paycheck and doing complicated forms of hustles and participation in the informal economy and complicated algebra to figure out how to get by and live. The point to where one change in the tax code, one change in a government subsidy um, or one change in law basically breaks that entire um, algebra for people's survivor survival strip to where um, it spirals it from, you know, we're protesting this one law to this entire system has failed us and we want something different. And it's also the the, for, the role that the internet plays and social media plays cannot be underscored enough because um, as someone I talked to um, mentioned this weekend, you know, everyone up until now, you know, you can say was living peacefully, putting on a happy face, leading, you know, someone like Sebastián Piñera to say, oh yeah, versus the oasis of Latin America, democracy, economics, um, you know, high per capita um, GDP. Um, but then most people are actually just essentially kind of like living what they know is to be a lie. Um, they're debt ridden, they live paycheck to paycheck. And um, with like something like Evasio Masiva, um, people see just a few high school kids jumping a turnstile and sharing that on social media. And people realize, okay, so those kids are also not happy with what's happening right now, just like me. And those kids are also, you know, just as precarious as me. And yeah, I don't really have to pretend that the system's working for me. But then also I can see that I can kind of take a direct action. I can kind of like imagine a new way of both doing politics, but also a new way of kind of living in this current moment. Um, because I'm seeing other people are also, you know, not pretending that this is working for us anymore. And so that kind of way in which, you know, in a kind of meme form of I'm seeing that people are doing this direct action. I'm also seeing that, you know, this way the system is run doesn't work for me and kind of spiraling into this kind of global revolt. But these kind of very specific historical issues and legal issues as they appear in Hong Kong or Latin America or Barcelona. Thank you so much for giving us this uh, micro view of the of the social explosion as well as the historical context and the social fabric that has made that's been its fuel. Yeah, are there any last words that uh, you want to share with us? Yeah, thank you, Bella, again for having me. Um, this was a really great conversation, and for those listeners who um, are listening in and want to know how can I support what's going on in Chile right now, there is a GoFundMe. It's GoFundMe.com support Chilean protesters. 
And um, this is a GoFundMe that um, is trying to raise money to go towards uh, University of Chile medical students who have organized a street medic team um, who are helping people who get you know, shot with birdshot, people who are affected with tear gas, um, elderly who are caught in dangerous situations. So it's going towards medical supplies for them, as well as going towards um, several Oyakamuns in the neighborhood. So the Oyakamun in Parque Forestal, as well as two other Oyakamuns in other neighborhoods in Santiago. This is going towards, you know, helping provide the food for these neighborhoods, um, as well as the supplies they need to cook for hundreds of people on a daily basis. Posible. Que la locura más cuerda es buscar como ser libre. Creo en lo imposible. That's our show. We'll close with the final song from Ana Tiju. This is Creo en ti. I believe in you. Thanks to Nicola Garcia for taking us on a first-hand tour of Chile's uprising against the neoliberal policies and Pinochet-era tactics of the government of billionaire president Sebastián Piñera. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Doug Storm. Today's episode was produced by Bella Bravo and edited by myself. Cade Young is our executive producer. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. Con el paso de lo que caminamos Nadie muestra su careta